1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the programme, an interview with the BBC's World Affairs editor, John Simpson, on the crisis in Ukraine and over 50 years of reporting from the front line. This episode is a feature of the No Bullshit Leadership podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Our host on today's show is global CEO of Havas Creative Group and author of the book No Bullshit Leadership, Chris Hurst. Here's Chris with more.
2: Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. My name is Chris Hurst. We've been working away behind the scenes to bring you Season 3 and I have an amazing lineup of guests in the pipeline, including former White House Director of Communications Anthony Scaramucci and the editor of the Financial Times, Rula Khalaf. Season 3 will be dropping in the next few weeks and I'll be sure to keep you all posted. But I wanted to bring you today's episode a little sooner. Last Thursday, I had the privilege of speaking to the BBC's World Affairs editor, John Simpson. Back in late January, when John agreed to come on the podcast, I thought we'd be discussing the many and varied global leaders he has met and interviewed through his long career, rather than the biggest conflict in Europe since the Second World War. When I caught up with John, he had just returned from Finland, where he was reporting on the Ukraine crisis for his new BBC programme, Unspun World, and was hoping to get out to Ukraine itself as soon as possible. John has dedicated his life to reporting from the front line, joining the BBC more than 50 years ago as a reporter. His eyewitness testimony has shed light on many of the most significant moments in modern history, from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the Iraq War in 2003, where he was seriously injured in a friendly fire incident on the road to Baghdad. His career has taken him to more than 120 countries, including 30 war zones. We had a fascinating conversation about all of that, but had to begin with the events of the last three weeks. And I started by asking him whether Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a unique moment of crisis in his career. Um, yeah, pretty much,
3: actually, because, you know, you, you have to be even older than I am to remember uh, when one country just marches into its neighbour and takes it over. Actually, of course, the Russians have got previous... Uh, in this as well as so much else. I mean, they did um, march into Hungary in 1956 and into Czechoslovakia, as it then was in 1968, Um, and of course into Afghanistan in 1979. But that was a slightly different operation. So it's not true, therefore, um, to say it hasn't happened in Europe in my lifetime. It hasn't happened like this in Europe in my lifetime. The idea of just simply sending in your tanks and some very nasty other types of weapon uh, and using them fairly discriminately against, indiscriminately against... Um, uh, ordinary civilians. I mean, we've seen uh, examples of that just even uh, even overnight up this morning. So, yeah, it's different. Uh, it seems different. And it's, I'm afraid, brought an end to that feeling which most of us had, that things were kind of getting better.
2: They've got very, very much worse now and you you've you've touched on this in your answer to that question but there were many warning voices in the run up to the invasion but at the same time i feel like many people and i think including many world leaders uh, couldn't really believe that he'd do it uh, did you no
3: i didn't I, I i'll be absolutely honest i thought that the um intelligence that we were getting out of uh, london and uh, Washington was a kind of wind up uh, to make sure that that Putin uh, was nervous and would step back from anything he was going to do. I didn't think that the intelligence was so accurate, so moment by moment accurate, mm. and I. I I didn't think Putin would be so stupid, actually. Um, he's a very clever man. I've met him. I've been hugely impressed by him. But, you know, there's um, one uh, criminologist that I know said uh, he really yeah. did just lock himself up over COVID and saw scarcely anybody. And, you know, I think these these uh, uh, feelings of anger towards Ukraine simply welled up huh. inside him until it
2: did happen. So, so do you think then that that where we are now can be considered a failure of leadership by the by the West, particularly? Or, given that that, that Kremlinologist's observation, do you feel like this was a sort of the trajectory was inevitable, that that he was going to do this almost whatever happened?
3: Well, I'm not sure about how inevitable it was, Um, but uh, I I don't believe that it was a particular failure of the West. I mean, the West has failed in in all sorts of ways in the run-up to this crisis. Countries do, people do, individuals do. But I I don't think it was um, a kind of clear-cut uh, as action or lack of action by the West that did it. I mean, you could say, for instance, that uh, Joe Biden pulling American and therefore other Western troops out of Afghanistan last October, last August uh, was a, a, a suggestion to Putin that that he was weak and that uh, the West wouldn't uh, come together. I mean, that's perfectly possible. Yeah. Uh, anybody who looked at the way that Germany has uh, behaved uh, in in the past over the uh, Nord Stream pipeline, for instance, would say, well, they'll never do anything. You know, they'll always just sit there and take whatever we do. But um, that was a really serious failure uh, on Putin's part. I don't think it was a, so much a failure on the West's part. I think it was a failure of interpretation on his part.
2: I uh, I mean, I think in, in some ways, I feel like that the West has been as shocked by the coherence of the Western response <laughs> possibly as Putin has been. <laughs> you, you're absolutely right. And, you know, all the signs
3: were that it, it, we'd all sort of go running in different directions right, right. up until the moment where it became clear that uh, that Putin was actually going to do it. You know, there was, there was France. I mean, how long ago is it since... Uh, since Macron said that NATO was brain dead. It's probably about four months, three months, something like that. Um, You know, uh, Germany uh, brings in uh, um, a left of center uh, chancellor. Anybody would think he'll probably follow the sort of Gerhard Schroeder line from the past and Mm -hmm. will want to keep in with the Russians. And bingo, directly the, the flag was up. Uh, there was Germany taking an extraordinarily tough and strong line and there was Macron sharing all his information with the West. I mean, when did that happen? And uh, acting as though he was a member of this team that suddenly
2: didn't seem to be brain dead any longer. Uh, It's interesting you mention Schultz. It it strikes me that I, I think that, again, of course, everything that we're talking about is cu- is very speculative but it strikes me that it, w- it would be at least possible that putin would calculate that he would come in at least initially in a relatively weaker position than angela merkel as a as a new leader she you know seen as this kind of uh, icon for more than a decade but it it strikes me that that actually because he was so new into that role it was easier for him to make that huge policy U-turn than it might have been for Merkel, who was freighted with those th- that twelve-year strategy, which had been hers up until that point.
3: Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely you're right. It would have been really almost impossible, I think, for her to have, for instance, uh, jacked up uh, um, uh, Germany's defence spending in a matter of in mm. a matter of weeks, but you know um schultz is a, he's a he's um a, a, a social democrat it's not very easy for him to just ignore the uh the, the mutterings on the left of his party and and do these things that you know we might have
2: expected we might have associated more with a christian democratic leader mm. um so putin's been um an unchallenged leader of in Russia for 20, more than 20 years obviously there was that slightly odd interregnum when uh, Medvedev I think it was sort of sort of took charge um do you think that that I mean you mentioned the last 2 years of of the isolation of covid but do you think that sort of a 20 you know key to understanding him now is understanding that he's been an, essentially a I suppose on a trajectory to being a dicta- dictator for the past 20 years well
3: all I can tell you is that I've watched Putin over the years, over those 22 years, uh, and, and longer actually. I actually first met him um, about a month after he became the deputy mayor or a deputy mayor of St. Petersburg,
2: in St. Petersburg which was in right,
3: 1992. Yeah. And I was introduced to him by the actual mayor, Anatoly Sobjak. I just have a little faint sense of a short, ginger-haired, rather kind of inward-looking uh, a figure whom I tried to be polite to, but was probably rather dismissive of because he clearly didn't count and he clearly would never go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've met him, talked to him privately uh, and publicly over over the years, and I would never have thought that he uh, would turn into this kind of character he was obviously um a very kind of um uh suspicious and uh careful uh character i mean he wasn't there wasn't anything very sort of open and 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 pleasant about except i have to say um uh, at the risk of sounding uh well, name-dropping outrageously and so on. He did say nice things about my broadcasting. And ironically, uh, even more ironically, he said, then nice things about the BBC, um, to which he listened, he said, um, on, on a daily basis to improve his English. And, you know, it, the same man would not say or do those things. Now, something has happened in the meantime. Has the power just simply gradually over the, Years gone to his head. Um,
2: it certainly has gone to his head. But is it more recent? So we. I really want to talk about the rest of your career. So we. I'm going to leave Ukraine in a minute. But I feel like on a leadership on a podcast about leadership, we cannot leave uh, Ukraine without talking about its president, Vladimir Zelensky. Um, who it seems to me is well, I'm not just me. I think the the world. It seems like he's an absolutely astonishing man. Who I who I who I genuinely believe. Personally, I believe he's already left an indelible mark on history, irrespective, uh, you know, of, of how this plays out. I think a case of cometh the hour, cometh the man, if if ever there was one. Um, have you met him or, or what are your impressions? Uh, of no, him? I haven't met him. Uh, I hope I'll do so in the
3: next uh, sort mm. of month or so. Um, I, I mean, again, confession time. When I saw that uh, a, a comedian was standing uh, for the presidency and then that against the, the run of play he had, he had won the, the presidency, I'm afraid I thought... You know, this is the world in general. This is kind of going down the tube yes. really, really fast. Yes. Um, yes, yes, and and what a magnificent uh, performance that he's put up. I mean, that I don't think any of the MPs and Lords in the in the uh, Commons and the House of Lords who watched him the other day will. Ever forget that experience as he sat there in his dirty overalls and he hadn't shaved for a bit, uh, you know, showed them what actual leadership can really, really be like.
2: Yes, I mean that 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 is going to be a well, is already a historic moment that we'll talk about, I'm sure for. Well, way beyond our lifetimes, I think that 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 speech. Um, so, look, John, it's it fa- I, honestly I could talk to you about Ukraine for for, for forever, but um, you've done so many other fascinating things as well. So let's let's move on to the uh, your career prior to the last two weeks, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you you once we're going to move from one uh, one uh, let's say dubious leader to some others. You once specialized in interviewing uh, dictators such as Saddam Hussein, Colonel Gaddafi. Um, how did you prepare for these? Uh, you know, was it different to meeting, you know, I, I don't know, uh, Francois Mitterrand? In terms of your preparation, I'm sure the experience it, Well,
3: yeah, it is because for one very good reason, that um, ordinary politicians, or at least elected politicians, are... Um, they're, they're used to answering questions. Uh, dictators aren't. Dictators don't actually like being asked questions. When you uh, asked uh, um, um, uh, Saddam Hussein a question, he'd rear up and look at you and say, who are you? What brings you here? You know, you are just simply my mouthpiece, my my." the the loudspeaker that I'm shouting into, you know, you don't you don't get to ask me questions, and that is true. I think of all the various uh, dictators and weirdos that I've that I've interviewed, um, and even the most what shall we say? I'm just trying to think about it, of a of a suitable and inoffensive um, expression to describe Margaret Thatcher. I mean, she was d- deeply autocratic in many many ways but she would listen to your questions and she would answer well often i used to think give you a better answer than most other politicians you know who turn up um uh, with a with a, a with it all prepared and practiced in their minds
2: so she took you seriously yeah
3: yeah well, I don't know how seriously she she did take <laughs> she n- pretended to take you seriously, <laughs> journalist. But she she listened to the questions. She liked being asked difficult questions. I suppose that's it. She she liked showing off, and she loved it when she actually used to really enjoy it when I I would try and. Um, and and find really kind of complicated ways of getting her to confess that she was wrong, and uh, about something. And the way in which she dealt with that, I used to think was a was a masterclass in 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 in, in interviewing. But that's the big difference. I mean, there's another difference that you're always um, with a man like Colonel Gaddafi, for instance. But there's loads and loads more. The Emperor. Bokassa of of the Central African Empire no less one of the two emperors that I've interviewed in my time um, he uh, um, you never knew really whether if, if you actually push them beyond a, a certain limit uh, you might not leave well even the room let alone the country
2: well I was good. that was my my follow-up question is were, were you scared or, or and or and or scarred by any of those experiences
3: um, unscarred i think unscarred by most things uh well that's good from having a deeply insensitive nature really but but <laughs> un, also un, un unscarred by um physically i mean no no i never was was uh, beaten up or roughed up i think in uh, as a result of any interview, oh, except one uh, but that was the ira and that was a long time ago but i mean in terms of in terms of going to you know to baghdad or something um uh, no i you knew pretty much actually that you were going to get out of there okay
2: and uh, who was the who was the most memorable leader that you've that you've
3: met well memorable for different uh lots of different reasons um i mean i suppose Uh, It's a bit of a kind of Reader's Digest answer, but uh, I suppose I've got to say Nelson Mandela because um, uh, you couldn't keep your eyes off him. I mean, he had that fantastic star quality where even just standing up and picking up his walking stick was done like like a star. Um and he was so genuinely charming. He was as real in private uh, uh, and before he became president uh, as he was after his his presidency um and i I loved him I absolutely loved him. I, he wasn't perfect and he made uh, you know in, you can say that he opened the door a little bit to the corruption that's just overwhelming South Africa now but in terms of the person that he was just quite magnificent Vaclav Havel of the uh, Czech Republic um, a man that I got to know when he was a political um, fugitive well not a fugitive but a, a, an ex-prisoner just being allowed out uh, uh ill um in uh, quite seriously ill from the way that the czech authorities had treated him and so when is this, is this in
2: 1970 no, this John, was
3: 1983 i think i went there um and uh you know what a what a fantastically brave and charming and funny man he was again you know if you were building a a a political leader out of out of uh, lego or something you know he is the one that you would want he understood ordinary people the first thing he did when he got into the um uh, this enormous palace the hradcany palace in in prague was to order a couple of scooters, so that he and and his chief advisor could go down the corridors, up and down the corridors, talking to each other as they as they scooted. I it just there wasn't anything that that man did that seemed to me uh, wasn't absolutely what a decent and wonderful political leader should do. So there's them, I mean, there are loads of others, but those are the two best ones, the ones that I love, I loved actually, not just liked, but loved.
2: it's often said that journalists write the first draft of history um and i think in that way that that is a that is a leadership um uh, responsibility let's say do you feel like that weighs on you a little
3: yeah it, it really does um uh you see i i mean aside from my day job i've written various books uh, some of them about journalism and looking back at um well in, in in one case looking back at journalism right back to its very origins in the 1620s and i've been often very critical of 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 uh, uh, british and 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 other journalists for the way in which they've been taken in uh, the way in which they, they allowed their their own preconceptions to color everything i mean please do not read uh, the British press on the uh, Russian Revolution because you'll scarcely get a single genuine fact out of it. But that means, of course, that uh, that does weigh on me a bit. Um, you know, am I doing the same kind of things that that the the British press did then or that they did, I don't know, at the time of Suez or something? Um, am I allowing my... Ideas, my principles, my affections—often uh, uh, to to cloud my judgment of what's going on here. Uh, I mean, journalism is such a um, uh, an inconsistent and unreliable guide to things. The fact is, it's the only guide w- we actually have today. Well, I was going
2: to say it's it's the it's the best we've yeah. got. It's the only
3: we've got. Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, it's certainly it's certainly in my opinion preferable to getting your uh, worldview from Twitter, for for example.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, don't talk to me about Twitter. I, mean, I, uh, I, I, you know, fling my phone across
2: the room every now and then yeah. with the stuff that people write. Yeah, m- m- you and you and me <laughs> both. Um, but building on that, do you think that you've you've got things wrong, and uh, in, in, indeed, is, it, is that even the right word to use in the context of journalism and your? Oh, role? I think
3: it's got to be because if you don't hold uh people like me uh, to account for what we've written um then you know what's what's the point of uh, of anything yeah i've got i've had i've got loads of things wrong in my time um uh i i actually do i think remember every example or or, or most of them i mean these are usually quite trivial things um uh, but uh, you know there have been there have been bigger things and i've i've well as i say fortunately i didn't do any broadcasting about uh, uh, whether putin was liable to to invade ukraine but if i had i would have got that very very badly wrong and i'm so glad that that fate just uh, Held me back from uh, from doing it, and there were lots of other things to talk about, which were which were slightly safer. But yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've um, I I didn't think that uh, um, I didn't know that Saddam Hussein would invade Kuwait. Well, that's not a good example because nobody else did either, no, that was just no. his decision overnight. Um, but uh, the, I, you know, I mean, so many
2: things that I've uh, that I've failed at. And so, so yeah, impartiality is a, a hot topic at the BBC right now. And by the way, I'm not going to not going to get you into any trouble. <laughs> I hope. What does that mean to you? I mean, do do you, do you ever feel kind of caught in the middle?
3: Well, yes, I mean, I think you should be too. I think you should always feel that, that you are. And I mean, just to, I'm not evading your question because I will come and answer it. But um, I always think the right place for a journalist is in the kind of no man's land between the different sides. I get really uncomfortable about the idea of, um, for instance, talking about we, us, mm. our, uh, that yes. doesn't, I don't feel happy talking about that, whether it's about Britain or about the West or even indeed about human beings, although I suppose it's more uh, acceptable if you're talking about the human race in general. Um, uh, To be unbiased, to be honest, to be uh, open um, is, uh, I think, uh, um, the, the right Way of doing things, uh, if if you can do it, I think you have to accept it's bloody difficult. Uh, it you know to 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 take off your your um, carapace of opinions and background and so on and see things as they are. But it, I think it is possible. I argue would argue that it's uh, entirely possible and should and should be done. What I don't think works any longer is. What uh, is how the BBC used to do things? You know, the the uh, um, the government says this, uh, the opposition uh, says that, and you just leave it there. I don't think that's any longer really acceptable. And the judgment that uh, say a government minister has said something which isn't true, uh, this mm-hmm. is very much of our time. That uh, it's you know because. Government ministers used to strive uh, very hard not to tell lies uh, in public.
2: How old-fashioned.
3: I, I know, I know, and how depressing <laughs> that it should be. Yes. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that a, a balanced broadcaster has to, has to take account of uh, untruths and has to, has to redress the balance for the untruths as well as it's just such a cop out to say uh you know the the remainers say this and the the leavers say that uh it's you know you just might as well not exercise a brain at all you could just uh, b- b- put their um their handout side by side and read them out so i i think that um i i i mean i'd Die for the principle of balance. Um, I, I think it's the most important thing that that the BBC can do and has ever done. Do we get it wrong? Of course we do. Loads of how I got it wrong, loads and loads of times. I, you know, I'm not saying we do it right, but I'm saying that striving for it is the most important thing we can do.
2: Yes, and I think particularly um, we just mentioned Twitter in a world where if you want to know what the left say or the right say or the remain say or the leave say you, you you can find that everywhere all the time if you just mouthpieces exist in a way that they didn't i think in in the past so in a sense the role of the media was partly to to tell you what the each side were saying whereas it seems to me now the role of journalism and certainly it, certainly when people are paying for journalism and I mean, we are paying for the BBC in an indirect way well in a direct way just in a different way um you I think the role of journalism has evolved in that sense as well as you want journalists who are going to uh interpret um what what is being said and what is happening and I you know and I think that's for me that's an important that role is even more important when we're being deluged with this kind of, uh, you know, the social media or the, the 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 Twitter channels from the from the opposing forces.
3: Yes, no, I I I thoroughly agree. I I, I think I mean it, this principle of the the license fee. I think should be something which uh, um, hangs over everybody that works for the BBC and. You know, I think you should be able to say to yourself, um, "I'm when I'm reporting on this particular situation, whatever it may be, I'm reporting to people who've got very, very different, probably opposing views of what's going on." And not that you can necessarily convince them, but the one thing that you do have to convince them about is that you're being honest and fair, and that you're saying these things because you have evidence to believe it's they're true. And uh that I think is the is what differentiates uh public service broadcasting. It's not only the BBC uh from, from other uh from other forms of of, of journalism. You know, it isn't it, we aren't just uh, the same as the as the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph or the just working in a different medium. It, it, it's a it's a different mindset, and um, I think it's I think that is really
2: important actually. And and it's it's interesting as well. We, we talked about Ukraine suddenly. We find ourselves in a world where there's a there's a war again in Europe, um, and I think that the we might find ourselves being reminded about the BBC's role beyond uh, the UK. You know, the BBC historically has been a source of reliable information for people in all sorts of oppressed and difficult situations and I think that's a that I think we to an extent sort of forgot that a little bit and I think that's possibly going to become more important again in the future
3: well I hope you're right um, the uh, listenership to uh, the um, uh, BBC R- Russian service on the radio tripled virtually overnight uh, um, when the when the invasion of of uh, of Ukraine happened um, and um, you know, this year uh, I'm I'm sorry I'm beginning to sound like a bit. No, no. I ask you, I'm i i a, a
2: supporter but... of the BBC, so I you know I, I'm a big fan. So uh, <laughs> no problem.
3: Well, thank you. Um, but uh, you know, we're we're now uh, going to hit at some stage this year, probably quite soon, um, uh, 500 million viewers, listeners, and readers around the world, half a billion people, it's the biggest audience uh, of any. Organization uh, broadcasting abroad and um, a, an opinion poll, the independent opinion poll, just recently showed that uh, the BBC was the most trusted uh, broadcaster of any uh, internationally. And these are things you know they're great, but you of course you can't just sit back and say, "Oh, well, that's fine." You know that's uh, that's where you've got to keep on working for it and to make sure that in a year's time in two years time
2: people are still saying
3: the same thing
1: mm.
2: oh, i want to c- come back and talk specifically a bit about your job as, as a correspondent um what what does it involve i mean obviously we talk about the we talk about the uh what i imagine is the tip of the iceberg bits where you know you talk to vladimir putin or you know Angela merkel or whoever it is but uh, but i i imagine that that The vast majority of your job isn't doing that.
3: (laughs) No, I mean, to be honest, uh, uh, and I'm perhaps being more than honest than I should be, um, for some time I was kind of pretty much uh, hanging on the precipice. I mean, I'm now 77, um, and uh, there was a definite kind of move to say, you know, cut the old boy loose, um, which I, I rather resisted. Uh, in the last uh, two years, year or two years, uh, I've, I've kind of made a comeback. I, I've got a son, 16 years old, um, lovely boy, um, not perhaps as well read in the classics as he might be. <laughs> That's true of us and, all. That's uh, surely true of great... us all, John. Certainly <laughs> true of me. A great lover of football. <laughs> a great lover of football. And I said to him, "When I, I, they, the BBC's now given me a new program and uh, a lot of lot more um, uh, opportunities to travel and broadcast. The bless their hearts." And uh, I said to my son, "I feel exactly like <laughs> Lazarus."
2: And my son said, "Oh yeah, who does he play for?" Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so do you do you think that people that uh, report from war zones uh, are are a particular breed? I mean, I'm you know I'm thinking of you know people you will know far better than me, but you know Capper and Gelhorn and Ernie Pyle and you, you know your your colleagues Martin Bell and Lee Um you don't seem to fit the stereotype uh do you think there is one I, there is a stereotype which is you know those
3: characters that go around with those uh, uh yeah. jerkins with all sorts yeah. of pockets and stuff like that and uh and silly hats and uh say you know where's the where's the front line i mean that is uh there are types like that they tend not to be from the big organizations um they tend to be kind of freelancers who turn up and, and bless our hearts they often do uh, a superb job but um not my kind of uh, uh not the kind of person i i kind of identify with really um I think the 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 one thing that does seem to link all these people together um, is a willingness from time to time to set aside their own particular comfort and safety, and secondly, a real sense of curiosity about what's happening, uh, an unwillingness just simply to take it uh, take it off the front page of the Guardian. Um, uh, and a desire to go and see for themselves what's actually happening, and I, that that is true of just about everybody that you've named. I mean, Martha Gelhorn, I'm proud and grateful to say, was a real uh, close friend of mine in the last what about six years? I wow. think of her life uh, in in London, and uh, I I had hours upon she hours must have had some amazing stories. Oh fantastic So funny stories and and savage stories and uh, not always a um, very comfortable stories either and you know I mean her her um, first husband um, um, Ernest Hemingway wasn't exactly one of her favorites either and and, and that whole idea of that male type of, uh, of 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 journalism she didn't like that but um, she didn't like funnily enough, 't like all this emphasis on women journalists either she said darling I'm'm I'm, I'm just a journalist uh, I happen to be a woman it's of no significance and um, so she you know not very enthusiastic about uh, about a lot of the things in our
2: in our professional lives now I wonder to myself if whether you've been a, a little bit self-effacing in the sense that one of the things we haven't talked about is raw physical courage. I mean, does that play a part? Well, I mean,
3: if if I'm honest, yes, it does. Uh, it can do at any rate. I, 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 the first thing to say is that even uh, reporting in war zones right up on the firing line is not often as dangerous, or so it's not 100% uh, dangerous all, all the time. I mean, you... I, I've I've had various got various injuries, bit lumps of metal in me, limp, uh, death, all from from bombs and 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 guns uh, and things. But um, those things usually happen not because you're you've pushed ahead somewhere you shouldn't be, but by chance somebody else has made a mistake uh, in 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 where you're you're bombed. The, I think the one thing that uh, if I were talking to a, a young a young journalist who wanted to do these kind of things, I would say always go further than you think you ought to um, because your your fears kick in quite early on when you when you're when you're going around and some loud bangs and uh, you know all sorts of things happening um, you should get closer. Uh, always get closer, and I've I've passed that on to people. In my own case, I think um, if I can be uh, if I can stand outside myself a little bit, I think uh, the the times that I uh, have some reason to be proudest of is not those necessarily those times. It's when you're on your own, and your your organisation orders you to leave. And on, I think, three occasions, I've uh, disobeyed instructions and stayed. And it was always the right thing to do. I mean, once when a group of people were hunting us down uh, in um, in uh, um, Serbia uh, during the, the bombing of, of Belgrade, and um, once in uh, the... Um, bombing of of uh, of Baghdad in 1991. Uh, again, the BBC ordered me out and somewhere else too. And um, I, you know, I just think there are times when you've got to say to yourself, "Look, I'm probably not going to get out of this, so I'm going to do the best I possibly can while I'm here." And then, bingo. You do
2: get yeah. out of it so i mean it's you know it's win-win <laughs> yes, i it sounds absolutely terrifying to me i'm gonna be honest John. <laughs> For somebody who works in advertising that's pretty scary um uh, and uh, so what's what what's kept you going what's kept you going back to to do all these places over the past 50 years i mean are you a little bit of a secret journaling junkie i mean is, it, is
3: no i'm not i really really i'm not uh honestly i i'm i'm not um but uh what i i just i just kind of get irritated that i'm not i i i i'm not seeing it for my for myself really that's all i mean i'm having no secret i think about it i'm having a real battle with the bbc at the moment because i very very much want to go to ukraine and they look at me and they think this, this old boy is 77 and, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's probably not going to make it. And so we're having we're having a, a battle, I, I suppose, that win, but
2: you uh, might have to end up being I'll, like one I'll... of those guys you were talking about. You might have to get your your jacket with lots of pockets on and just, you know, and go, and go yourself. <laughs> yeah. Do it for yeah.
3: Myself. yeah, but I'm, I'm too uh, I'm too mean to pay for myself after 50 years of, uh, of being paid for. <laughs> So I, I mean that's that's really uh, that's really what keeps me uh, going. Um, also, um, uh, you know, I think it 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 is to have something to add to the general conversation about a, a situation like this. Um, I I belong um, uh, nowadays. I, I, I often think I'll uh, get into trouble for belonging to the Garret Club. In trouble because you know it, it hasn't yet accepted women, though it will, of course. Um, and uh, when I first started as a, as a member, uh, lots and lots of famous old broadcasting luminaries like Robin Day and oh, I don't know, endless others used to have a table in the in the dining room, and they'd sit there. And if you sat near them, you'd hear uh, all their old stories. But the stories all ended on the day they. They retired. Yeah. And yes. um, I just used to think, I, I don't, really don't want to be like this. I don't want my life to end at the age of 68. And then suddenly the only people I can talk to or are interested to talk to me uh, are people who remember all those things from the past. I don't want to be... uh, I probably am anyway, but I I don't really want
2: to be the club boy. I'm I'm sure that'll never happen. So I have have two final questions. The the first is, um, if you could go back to the start of your career, um, what advice would you give your younger self? Never, ever leave a story,
3: I was was in um, Angola uh, and I stumbled together with several other people, I stumbled across uh, a really big story at the time, a big story, a massacre that had been carried out by British soldiers, uh, British mercenaries rather, and um, uh, it was ultra scary. It really was absolutely terrifying. And uh, the BBC said, come back to London and do it. And I I went back to London. And the people that I'd left, left behind got the story out before me and uh, got a much better and more uh, effective story than I did. I would say to any young reporter... Never, never leave the story until you're absolutely certain that it's finished And do not go out early because you're scared Because you'll always be scared about something And it's just, uh, it's not worth, it's not worth leaving for But there's a second thing I would say uh, to any young uh, young um, person really starting up don't Don't limit yourself in how long you think you can do the job I mean, here am I. I'm still chasing around the place. I was in Afghanistan uh, uh, a month ago, um, uh, at the age of of, of seventy seven. Uh, you know, don't limit yourself. Don't think that just because you pass a certain figure, uh, you then cease to be a value. Um, and I, you know, I just kind of keep on hoping it's true. I'm sure that it is. Well,
2: look, I, I mean, I have got one final question, but what I, what I would say is that, you know, I think on behalf of all of us, we, we'll we start petitioning the BBC to uh, to let you into Ukraine, because I certainly would uh, uh, would love to hear your perspective on it. It would be fascinating. So, my my final question is an entirely selfish question, in fact. So, um, anybody that knows me knows that I'm, a, I'm something of a geek about old aeroplanes. And, and I discovered by chance that you're, I think you're great. great grandfather, am I right, flew the first powered flight in Britain in 1908, a year after I think Blerio crossed the Channel. Um, yeah. no, a year, no, before, year before, of course, a year before Blerio crossed the Channel, oh, thank you. Um, did, legend, did did sort of legends about him feature significantly in your childhood or you know, do you think there's some uh, connection? Oh, do you think some yes. of your kind of uh, spirit has come from him?
3: Well, what a lovely question to ask, thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I was brought up in the sort of afterglow of of Colonel Cody. He was uh, he wasn't a colonel, and his name <laughs> wasn't Cody. Uh, he was to some extent a con man, um, except where everything that mattered was concerned. So he came over to England. Uh, he was a brilliant uh, rider and shot, uh, absolutely brilliant marksman. Those were those were facts. About him, and he built up a, a, a circus. He called himself Cody because of uh, Butler Bill Cody, um, and he uh, ran off with my great grandmother, who was uh, a married woman with no fewer than four kids uh, living in Chelsea. And um, he went the toured Europe with his with his circus. She used to stand against uh, an iron screen, and he'd. Ride around on his horse, firing uh, his uh, gun at, the, at little glass balls all round her, her figure. Once he hit her in the in the thigh, and to kind of maintain his reputation for accurate marksmanship, she stood there um, until the show, until the the, the act was finished. Um, and he was absolutely magnificent. Much older than all the other young guys that were that were flying pioneers. He was, he was already in his late 40s, early 50s, um, and uh, it, the only way that he knew how to land was to crash. So every flight that he took, including his first one, ended in a near-death experience. Um, just a wonderful, fantastic, charming bloke. And then one day in 1913, he took a new model plane up and it broke up in the air and uh, he uh, he died uh, instantly. And I always felt something kind of went out of my family, a bit of the glamour um, and excitement and joy went out of my family when he died. But, uh, you know, I was only born 30, 30 odd years later. but everybody in the family was still talking about Cody, wow. Cody, Cody. Wow.
2: wow. Well, they do say, they do say that any landing you can walk away from is a good landing. So, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was, sure that was true then. Well, uh, John, it's absolutely uh, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed that. And I've learned a lot from it. And so thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
3: Thank you. And I can't tell you how, much about how chuffed I am that you would have noticed uh, Cody and uh, talked about him too.